The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Today's show marks the beginning of the fourth year for NDE Radio, and I want to offer special thanks to all the listeners that have made this program the second most listened to program in all of Talk Zone Radio. Who's the first, you may ask? Well, it's Richard Surrett's Conspiracy Show, which is hard to beat in this age of paranoia. Actually, Richard has had me on his show, and he's an excellent interviewer. I always enjoy listening when he guest hosts Coast to Coast AM as well. So we're number two to a giant, but even so, we'll have to try harder. Yesterday morning, public radio woke me with the news about a bombing in my old neighborhood, West 23rd Street in New York, near the Chelsea Hotel, where I stayed for a time in the 1960s. People got mugged or overdosed back then, but hardly ever got blown up. The 60s hope was that love would overtake violence and the world would become a better place. Were we naive, or was it that we just didn't try hard enough. In a recent show, I mentioned my dad, Chris Whitting's career, included being general manager of one of the earliest TV networks, the Dumont Television Network out of New York City. And one of the earliest shows he put on Dumont was 20 Questions, a quiz show that survives as a parlor game even to this day. Wikipedia explains the rules of the game as follows. In the traditional game, one player is chosen to be the answerer. That person chooses a subject, but does not reveal this to the others. All other players are questioners. They each take turns asking a question which can be answered with a simple yes or no. In variants of the game, multiple state answers may be included, such as the answer may be. The answerer answers each question in turn. Sample questions could be, is it bigger than a bread box? Or, can I put it in my mouth? Lying is not allowed in the game. If a questioner guesses the correct answer, that questioner wins and becomes the answerer for the next round. If 20 questions are asked without a correct guess, then the answerer has stumped the questioners and gets to be the answerer for another round. Wikipedia goes on to note that careful selection of questions can greatly improve the odds of the questioner winning the game. Now, sometimes when I'm interviewing folks who have had near-death experiences, I feel like I'm playing 20 questions myself. It's not like the topic of the questions is unknown. In fact, it's it's all about what happens when we die. Now, the 20 questions we play on NDE Radio is subtler than that. It's primarily because the NDE answers were oftentimes playing the 20 questions game as questioners with the angels or with Jesus or with God himself during the time they were transported into the light, or shall we say, to the other side. So my goal as host is to elicit what the NDEer learned when they were asking God for answers. God played the answerer in that conversation, and we can assume, I think, that he didn't lie. Later, the NDEer plays the answerer to my 20 questions, and we become less sure of the accuracy with every level of removal from the source. Still, we do the the best we can, 
given the circumstances. Over the last few days, I've had at least 20 questions of my own running through my head, and it occurred to me that with some 774 near-death experiences happening in this country alone every day, there must be answers out there that haven't yet been sufficiently shared with our audience or me. So, listen up, all you NDEers out there. And if you feel that during your NDE event you learned the answer to one or more of my 20 questions, please email me, and perhaps we'll have you on the show to solve a bit of the mystery. So here's the deal. I'm going to list 20 questions in no particular order, and if you think you have an answer provided in some way to you, an answer you've gotten from an NDE or a vision, uh, a dream perhaps, or even from a friend who has had an NDE or uh, experience from the other side, um, you email me and let me know, and I'll give you my email address at the end of the show. Okay, so let's begin. This is number one. If we're relying on reincarnation to learn more about ourselves, about the world, about the values of the spiritual life, or to perfect ourselves in some way, as as uh, those who believe in karma would say. But in the meantime, we as human beings are destroying the planet. <laughs> Where and in what capacity will we reincarnate? In other words, if we if we destroy the environment here, where will we reincarnate? And in what form? Will we not be humans? Will we be roaches? Anyway, number two is related to that. Question number two, if we are to reincarnate as aliens, will it be as an advanced race who can travel back through space and time to visit the late great planet Earth? And could today's UFOs, the ones that we actually are spotting and encountering, uh, you know, in more than just visual, the, um, the what was it, the third, uh, close encounters of the third kind, could the UFOs we see actually be piloted by our reincarnated future selves? Okay. Question number three. Those who watch the summer TV series Brain Dead may appreciate this one. Are we morally responsible? That is, do we have to account to God for behavior that may be caused by parasites working our brain? All right, that sounds far out. Let me explain. A recent edition of Radiolab discussed how parasites that live in cats uh, learn how to control the brains of mice and perhaps even us. The folks on Radio Lab, and this actually came from a, uh, I believe it came from a book uh, on the same subject, reported that the disease uh, toxoplasmosis, a very common uh, disease from cats, comes from the parasite Toxoplasma gondii, one of the world's most common parasites. They can infect many mammals, but can only reproduce in cats. In other words, their drive is to be in the cat so that they can reproduce. But they get excreted from cats in the cat feces, in the litter pans, and that's why they warn that pregnant women especially should avoid uh, cleaning out litter boxes because um, it, can, uh, it can damage um, the fetus that they're carrying. So anyway, here's the parasites problem. How to get back into the cat to reproduce. 
and here's what they've learned to do. As the cat feces get devoured by mice, the parasites move into the mouse brain and change the settings on the mouse brain. Mice generally fear the smell of cat urine. They're afraid of cats because cats will kill them, and so they normally shy away from it. But the parasite changes the mouse's reaction to the smell of cat urine, and it makes it almost sexually excited. And so the mouse now chases after the cat smell, and of course, sooner or later, gets eaten by the cat. Voila! The parasite that was in the mouse is now back in the cat. Uh, where it wants to be to reproduce. The uh, Radiolab show also reported that up until the 1840s, and this is the part that would influence us, cats were not common house pets. And then some artists in Paris started keeping cats. And by the 1870s, many people were suddenly keeping cats. Now, is it possible the parasite had moved to the human brain by then, making humans attracted to cats? So there would be more cats around for the parasite to reproduce. In other words, as the, as the parasite made the mouse chase after the cat, has it affected us in a similar way? We all know how popular cats are. Just go on the internet, just go on uh, YouTube and see the gazillion cat, uh, shows you can watch. And the bigger question would be how many other brain shifting parasites? Because this is not the only parasite in the world. Are there out there, perhaps controlling human behavior in ways we haven't even discovered yet? It's a pretty neat question, but my original question was, if a parasite is making us do something, are we morally responsible for overcoming our own brain's uh, contamination and drive? Uh, or are we forgiven, as we might be with a, with a mental illness as well? All right, question number four. Are we all to some degree psychic, at least as far as impending disaster goes? It seems like in society generally there's a growing uneasiness. Uh, one could say even fear, mounting fear, and the result seems to be more and more extremely violent behavior. Of course, the media loves it. They play it up. And the politicians, especially this year, play it up. But are we all sensing something even beyond that, something that's coming, something that's real? That's the question. And is it something that um, we are being uh, asked to observe, to um, overcome, or to acknowledge? And, of course, all the end times thinking comes out of that. I mean, are we all anticipating Armageddon, or are we being warned of an impending disaster that we can cope with how is heaven communicating the future to us? Number five. This comes, uh, this is a biblical question. Is there more than one judgment? And are endy ears only seeing the first and gentler ones? The Bible speaks of two judgments. The Bema judgment by Christ. You can look these up, by the way, on, uh, if you want, Wikipedia. And the white throne judgment. Uh, which comes at the end of the world and is spoken of primarily, I think, in Revelation. NDEers often report a life review form of judgment in which we review how we treated others by experiencing how we made them feel. In other words, if we hurt them in some way, we stand in their shoes during this life review. 
But it's quickly over, and it seems like there are few penalties involved. But the Bible tells us of a second judgment called the White Throne Judgment, in which people are actually sent to heaven or hell based on how they behaved in the world. This is separating the sheep from the goats. This is the this is the weighing your soul against a feather time in um, Arabic terms. Could both of these judgments be true? Could we get a taste of heaven at first? Because the, the Bema judgment is the Jesus judgment. It's a loving judgment. It's a forgiving judgment. Only to be thrown out of heaven later for what we've done? Okay. Question number six. If God knows beforehand, and this is an old theological question, but it, it's one that continues to haunt. If God knows beforehand the outcome of our lives, why even make souls who cannot learn how to love? Number seven. New Agers say there is no evil, just lessons to be learned. That the, that the problems that we confront in the world as, as a, middle-class Americans, and even as uh, handicapped third-world children trying to pick uh, a living out of the dumps of Cairo, for example. They say there's no evil. And fundamental religions, on the other hand, say there is evil, and they uh, often become evil to prove their point. We see this in religious racism and in violent religious explosions like ISIS, where um, they will act, literally blow themselves up to kill other people. So which is worse in God's eyes? Because we're all, all of these questions are, are based in trying to learn what the other side's point of view is on this. What is, what is worse, believing there is no evil or killing in the name of God? Number eight, it's been estimated that up to 70% of human fertilizations um, miscarry naturally in other words if there's some sort of defect in the in the embryo if there's some sort of defect in the the wall of the uterus if there is some um, indication to the body that this isn't going to work out um, those fertilizations miscarry naturally so if god can make the decision to abort why can't a mother who is facing a desperate situation, perhaps a, a rape or a, uh, some sort of um, a pregnancy that resulted from being molested um, by a family member, some something that would create, or a, or a physical a deformity in the child that the mother doesn't feel uh, able to cope with. If God can make that decision or nature can make that decision to abort, why can't a mother make the same decision? And as a corollary... If God decides to abort, is there a soul in the fetus? Or is the soul not implanted in the first place? And the same question applies to the mother. Has the soul departed or has the soul not yet arrived? Or, a third point, has the soul wanted to experience being in a fertilized fetus only to lose its life at that point? Is this a lesson to be learned? So that's, this is, this, of course, uh, brings attention to the all of the questions about abortion that religions have raised. Number nine, if each NDE is a personalized experience, as some evidence indicates, are all the ancestors we meet just simulations, or are they people who have postponed 
reincarnating or moving on until we die so they can just say howdy and welcome to heaven. Or can your grandmother's soul, for instance, assuming she predeceased you, bilocate so that she may have, have already reincarnated, but she still has a part of herself, still, still in heaven, to be there to greet you, to make you feel welcome. Um, and a corollary to that is our, our souls in our bodies also bilocated in a way that means that our presence is also um, in heaven at least part of the time. Number 10, the Society of Friends, known as the Quakers, believe there is a spark of God in each of us. Now, when we die, if we should go to a hellish place, as some distressing NDEs uh, suggest exists, um, does that spark of God in us leave? Or is it the leaving of that spark that actually creates the hell in the first place? And this is... um. Uh, a question that does come back to me for, uh, time and again because uh, for quite a while I, I was uh, a member of the Society of Friends. And I truly believe that we do have a spark of God in each of us. But what happens to that spark of God if we fail to live up to that spark? Anyway, question 11. If fairies and elves... And leprechauns exist, and there's plenty of evidence that they do. Are they part of the angelic order? Or are they earthly beings like us, but operating on a different frequency? Are they something like a tiny Bigfoot? Or is there some other uh, aspect to their nature that we can't as yet understand? And has anyone gained a clue about this on the other side? I'll tell you a story. When, when my sister Anne was a little girl, she was lying in the grass at the cottage, which, by the way, is the same place I drowned and had my NDE so many years ago. Anyway, Anne told me she suddenly saw a fairy running through the grass, and it paused in shock when it realized Anne could see it. So what is the spiritual nature of these creatures anyway? And they obviously can see us, and it's only by chance, an unusual chance, that we can see them. I had an experience uh, many years later, something like that, which I believe I have time to tell you about. Um, it was uh, I was in San Francisco for my son's wedding. It was uh, New Year's Eve, and I decided in the evening I'd like to go for a walk. So the house, the friends who we were staying with, uh, they said, oh, well, what you want to do is go out the door, turn left, go up the hill on the street, on the street, and um, you'll see uh, a magnificent view from this hilltop of the city of San Francisco. Well, I said, that sounds great. So out I went, and I walked to the top, but it was a, a well-wooded street. There were no apparent views whatsoever, and I was standing there being quite puzzled when all of a sudden this little creature and I swear it was a, a, a miniature replica of a human being, looked like a, an elf or a leprechaun or something like that, ran by me and turned through the trees and disappeared. And I said, I'm going after that. I'm going to follow that. And I did. And as I did, I came through this thick 
grove of trees onto this magnificent hillside with this absolutely gorgeous view of the city of San Francisco. And I wandered uh, to a point, sat down, put my back against a rock, and watched the full moon rise. It was a gorgeous evening. And at the end of it, uh, they set fireworks off to celebrate the, the uh, New Year's all over the city. It was spectacular. But the most spectacular thing was my seeing that little creature that led me there. Number 12. Here's a basic question we ask over and over, never seem to get a fully, truly satisfying answer. Why is there suffering, gross inequality, hopelessness, and madness, insanity in the world? And how can people be held accountable even to themselves in their life review in the face of such conditions? That's a question um, that gets asked by religion, and pastors are always being put on the spot trying to come up with an answer that doesn't seem to be a really good answer on this side of the fence. So let's take uh, some answers from the other side. 13. Why do we cling to life when it's so treacherous, so painful, and heaven is so beautiful and so desirable? Does it confirm there is a judgment we're reluctant to face after all? I say uh, I'm not afraid to die based on my NDE when I was a child. But there has been a lifetime of selfish behavior since then. So maybe I should be afraid. Was my vision as a relatively innocent, inexperienced child that heaven was a beautiful place uh, be my guidepost when I'm old and have lived a life that has been, you know, compromised at best? Shouldn't I be afraid of death? Fourteen. If energy can't be destroyed, and energy is consciousness, do the very cells of the dead body retain some memory of our lives? Do the worms retain some memory when they eat us? And for that matter, do we gain some residual memory of grazing when we eat a hamburger? In other words, the matter that contains part of the energy which is partly, which is part of our consciousness, does that continue after the soul departs, after death? Is there a vibration that's left behind that we absorb, uh, for instance, when we eat a piece of meat? Fifteen. Is technology the curse named in the Bible as 666? The late Messianic Rabbi Zola Levitt first pointed out that in Hebrew, the letter W is replaced by the letter Vav, Hebrew letter Vav, the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That means the World Wide Web, WWW, is in Hebrew, 666. Technology is handy for sure, but it is also soul-stealing, as in virtual reality games, um, and it could ultimately prove to be deadly to the human race in terms of, well, just look at... uh, uh, the movies and the science fiction stories about uh, weapons technology taking things over, the matrix, the machines, um, and so forth. Is technology the ultimate evil that will bring us down? Terminator movies said that, and uh, 
they seem to resonate some part of our minds. I sixteen. Why do religions divide and subdivide and espouse such strangely diverse ideas when NDEs have been revealing what happens when we die for thousands of years? And are these changes that new religions come up with, um, these new understandings, are they based on re- revelations from the other side? Are all religions or most religions based on uh, visions and mystical experience, or are they uh, contri- just contrivances of human nature? Uh, 17, this is sort of related to that, and it's uh, it's more actually not a necessarily an answer from the other side, just a, a question about Islam that I don't understand. Why does Islam promise rivers of wine in heaven? They do, they, in the Quran, rivers of wine and milk. When uh, wine is a forbidden substance on earth, why is that considered a promise of something good when here on earth it's a condemnation for something evil? And likewise, this is question 18, this is about Mormonism, and the question is, why do Mormon men believe they will get their own planet when they die, and many wives to populate it, and presumably to help do the work, what does that say also about um, the status of wives in, in Mormonism? But that's a different, that's a whole different category that I don't necessarily care to get into uh, in answer to this question. But why should we um, get our own planet? And the isolation that that uh, implies, uh, one man owns this whole planet and... What about the community uh, that that is implied in the light, the community that's implied in the NDE vision of heaven? Um, why would that kind of isolation be a desirable thing? Question 19. When I lived in Philadelphia uh, many years ago, I knew a Quaker group who'd go to locations that reportedly were haunted, and they would try to talk the confused souls uh, that they encountered the ghosts that were there into entering the light. And their approach would be they would pray, I think first to get the ghost's attention, and then they would say, look around you. There are angels waiting for you. There are family members who will help you. There is a pathway into the light, and you are not supposed to be here. You're supposed to go into the light. My question is, are ghosts really confused souls, as these Quakers believed, or are they remaining on this plane in an attempt to complete some unfinished business, or is it because they are uh, addicted to something, or is it that they are uh, uh, afraid of um, going into the light because they just don't feel they're ready? Um, it may be a fear of judgment even a fear of the life review, and uh, maybe that's why they're hanging behind. And then uh, a corollary to that is uh, my question 20. Do ghosts really exist? Uh, something is there. I mean, we've all had experiences of uh, 
one form or another, or maybe not all of us, but many of us, including myself, have had experiences that can only seem to be explained by uh, the existence of ghosts. But do, if ghosts exist, are they um, only residual vibrations left behind by some people after the soul departs? Is there, is it again a bilocation? Has that soul actually moved on into the light, but some part of it has been left behind for some unknown reason? Well, that's my 20 questions for the show. Uh, as I said, I, I hope you'll send me some answers to my questions based on your own NDE or other personal mystery experience. You can send it to uh, the talk zone address or send it directly to Lee Whitting, L-E-E-W-I-T-T-I-N-G at gmail.com. And uh, tell me what uh, how you think you know the answer to my question as well as answering it. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. So if you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANDS, check out their website at iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.